Several years ago, a man came to my door with some religious literature and asked me, Are you afraid that man will obliterate himself in a nuclear war? My answer? No. He was shocked because he said he had never heard that answer before. So he asked me why I could say such a thing. I told him that I knew Jesus Christ and that Jesus had told us in the Bible that he would return before the end of this world to set up his kingdom. My friends, are you afraid that we will destroy the world with our nuclear weapons? In 2020, the Arms Control Association estimated that there were 13,500 nuclear warheads scattered across nine countries. The United States and Russia possessed over 12,000 of those warheads between them, with Russia slightly ahead. But other countries possess warheads as well. China is next with 320. France and England are close behind with between 200 to 300 warheads. Pakistan and India, two long-time enemies, possess 150-plus nuclear warheads each. Israel has 90. Scientists estimate that North Korea has just under 50, and Iran is close to joining the nuclear community. We live on top of a powder keg of nuclear weapons. Scientists estimate that just one megaton nuclear bomb would create a firestorm that would consume 100 square miles. Will man survive? Will humanity exterminate itself one day? No, but almost. We talk about the mother of all wars, but any war fought today is a baby of all wars compared to the final war that will consume this world. Zechariah 14 talks about that final war, when Christ returns as the warrior king. Christ will return in the midst of this final war, and he will end all wars for the next 1,000 years on earth. Christ will reign over his perfect kingdom on earth. Zechariah's remarkable prophecy lays it all out for us in chapter 14. First we see that the warrior king defends his kingdom in verses 1 through 3. People often talk about the battle of Armageddon. Movies depict it with horror. Journalists refer to Armageddon in dramatic terms. Many preachers who specialize in end-time events and prophetic sermons love to warn people about the Battle of Armageddon in spectacular ways. But what does the Bible actually tell us about Armageddon? If we are going to talk about this end-time event, then we ought to base our thoughts on the scriptures and not on human speculation. Let me set the stage for our study of Zechariah 14. Armageddon is a war, not a battle. Ezekiel 38 and 39, Daniel 11, and Revelation 16 and 19 all picture a series of military movements 
made by various national armies against Israel and against each other. Not just one big battle. The war of Armageddon takes place after the church has been removed from this earth, I believe. It takes place during the period of time the prophets called Jacob's Trouble, or the Great Tribulation, or the 70th week. I believe that the church is removed before this seven-year period of time begins. Near the end of this seven-year period, called the 70th week, the war will erupt, and it will culminate in the return of Jesus Christ as the warrior king. So with that as a brief theological backdrop, what does the prophet Zechariah tell us about this great and final war on earth? Well, the warrior king defends his kingdom with a great victory in verse 1. Zechariah writes, Behold, a day is coming, a day is coming for the Lord, when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. The prophet introduces his sermon by pointing to God, not man. We spend far too much time talking about man, not God. But the Bible is God-centered, not man-centered. The text says that a day is coming for the Lord. Humans may have our day now, but the Lord will have his day someday, and perhaps that day is soon, my friends. It is important to see that the prophet is talking about the Lord's day, or the day of the Lord in this chapter. The you in this passage refers to Israel, and the spoils are the spoils of war. In the Lord's great day of defending his people, they will regain the spoils which the Gentiles nation, Gentile nations took from them over all these years. The opening verse is an introduction to the whole prophecy which ends with great prosperity for Israel. The end of the chapter pictures a time when all the nations of the world will worship in Jerusalem, and the cooking pots of Jews will be holy to the Lord. They will regain the spoils that had been taken from them, and they will, God will divide those spoils among them when he wins this war. So Israel wins. Armageddon is a victory, not a defeat for Israel. Never forget the end of the story, my friends. That is why I can say with conviction that the world will not destroy itself in a nuclear holocaust. But almost. Look at verse 2. The warrior king defends his kingdom after great destruction in verse 2. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half of the city exiled. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. There are some who have said that the times of the Gentiles are over since the rebirth of the nation of Israel in 1948. But this is not true. 
because there is coming at least one more time when the Gentile nations will trample Jerusalem underfoot. The prophet Ezekiel prophesies about the same event in Ezekiel 39 verses 1 through 6. The Apostle John predicts the same event in Revelation 16 verses 13 to 16. Notice that it is God who will gather all the nations of the world against Jerusalem. God is sovereign. All that happens, happens within his sovereign will. So God gathers the nations against Israel. And the nations will win the initial battles. The city of Jerusalem will be captured and terrible atrocities will be committed against the people of Israel. God sovereignly allows all of this to happen to his people, even as he did many, many years ago in 70 AD. It's all according to God's great plan for the earth. The nations of this world will once again turn against Israel. Every time I hear such expressions as a new world order, I wonder about passages like Zechariah 14. This new world order will nearly obliterate Israel off the face of the map. If you will permit me a little speculation, take it with a grain of salt, my friends. The attempt to obliterate Israel will probably come about because she becomes an obstacle to whatever the New World Order wants to accomplish in the Middle East. And I think you can see how that could easily come to pass, even in the near future. However, there will be a remnant whom God will protect, right in the midst of that terrible time of destruction and evil the Messiah will return to save his people. One writer put it this way, The central problem of Christianity is, if the Messiah has come, why is the world so evil? For Judaism, the problem is, if the world is so evil, why does the Messiah not come? Well, my friends, Jesus will come, to solve both problems at once. Look at verse 3. The warrior king defends his kingdom by himself. Then, then the Lord will go forth and fight. The Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. When Israel is down and out, then Messiah comes. Why? Because Israel needs to learn the lie of independence. Right now, the nation relies on her military might and her political alliances. She will learn in that day that neither her military might nor her political alliances are good enough to save her. Israel doesn't think she needs God because she can do it herself. Not true. Not true. The Lord will fight that final battle for her. Only God can win that victory. We too 
must learn that lesson. Don't put your faith in human government. Don't put your faith in a nuclear arsenal. Don't put your faith in your military might or your political alliances. Presidents will fail and nations will fall. Learn the lie of independence and learn the joy of dependence on the Lord. Only when Israel stops trusting in herself, her abilities, and her connections will victory come for the nation. We have seen that the warrior king defends his kingdom. Now we shall see that the warrior king delivers his people in verses 4 through 6. Just when the crisis appears to be the blackest, God intervenes to deliver his people from their enemies. In the hour of Israel's greatest need, Jesus will return to the very spot where he left earth over 2,000 years ago. Only this time, he comes in power and glory to deliver his people from their enemies. The warrior king delivers his people supernaturally in verses 4 and 5. In that day, Zechariah writes, in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. You, meaning the nation of Israel, will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee, just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. The angels spoke to the disciples as they stood on the Mount of Olives with their mouths hanging open at Jesus' ascension to heaven. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Jesus returns to the same place that he left. He comes back to stand where he last stood on this earth, the Mount of Olives. Jesus does not deliver his people by normal means. There are great cataclysmic changes to the topography of the land of Israel. The Lord returns and stands upon the Mount of Olives, which splits in two from the east and the west, in order to allow the people who are being wiped out a way of escape from the city. Zechariah 14.4 is the only place in the entire Old Testament where the Mount of Olives is identified by that name. The mountain rises on the east side of the city of Jerusalem to a height of 2,710 feet above sea level. It stands about 330 feet higher than the Temple Mount, often called Mount Zion. In between Mount Zion and the Mount of Olives is the Kidron Valley, a deep ravine between the two mountains. 
I remember well when we walked down the steep slopes of the Mount of Olives opposite the eastern gate of the temple complex. We stopped at the spot where Jesus wept as he looked out over the spectacular view of the city laid out before him. He wept over Jerusalem then because he saw the horrible devastation that would come upon the city, his beloved city and his beloved people. Yet he also knew that he would return to that mountain to save his people in that great and final war of Armageddon. We do not know where the place called Azel is located in the land of Israel, but it is apparently a place east of of Jerusalem where the people will flee during this supernatural intervention of the Lord. He splits the mountain in two so that a valley forms through which the people flee to safety in the place called Azel. The risen Lord stands astride the mountain to protect his people from their enemies. So the warrior king delivers his people supernaturally, but the warrior king also delivers his people with his armies in verse 5, because verse 5 ends with these words, Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. In the midst of this horrific war, the Lord returns with his holy ones. These holy ones are both angelic armies and Christians who return with the Lord. Matthew 25.31 tells us that Christ will return with his angels. And 2 Thessalonians 1.10 tells us that the saints will be part of that great army at his return. He will be glorified in us before the world on that great day. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 2 that we Christians will judge the world. That is just one of the reasons why I believe that the church will be translated to glory before the great tribulation so that we can return among the armies of the King of Kings. The greatest picture of this triumphant return to rescue the nation of Israel is found in Revelation 19 verses 11 to 16. When Christ returns, he comes with his armies who are clothed in fine linen, white and clean, following him on white horses, according to Revelation 19:14. It is the bride of Christ, the church believers who is given to clothe herself in white linen, a few verses later in Revelation 19. The armies of Christ include believers of all ages who return with Christ to judge this world. Christ is coming back as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The nation of Israel must hold on to that promise because many dark days are ahead for her. And we too, my friends, must claim that promise through the dark days of our lives. Never let anyone take those promises away from you, for the promises of our Lord's future return will strengthen you for your present battles. The promise of Christ's return 
helps us face our current circumstances with faith. The story is told of a father and his 10-year-old daughter who went swimming off the coast of New Jersey. After they had been swimming away from shore, the father realized that the tide was carrying them out to sea. He realized that he could get back in, but not with his daughter. So he told her, Mary, I'm going to shore for help. When you get tired, just float on your back, and I will be back for you. The father swam to shore as rapidly as he could, organized boats to get his daughter, but it was still some time before they found her, alive and well, floating easily in the water. Everyone was excited about the rescue, except the little girl. Her comment was, My daddy said he would be back for me, so I just floated in the water like he told me. That's a picture of biblical faith, my friends. No matter how difficult your situation, Jesus said he would be back. So rest in his promises to get you through each day. Biblical faith is floating in the water until he comes back. First, the warrior king defends his kingdom. Second, the warrior king delivers his kingdom. And third, the warrior king refreshes his kingdom in verses 6 through 8. After the last great battle against her enemies, the nation of Israel needs some times of refreshing. Peter referred to this hope when he preached from Solomon's porch in the temple after the healing of the lame man. And he called the people to repent and return so that your sins may be wiped out in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, Acts 3.19. Times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. There is coming a day when God will refresh his land and his people with both physical and spiritual blessings. Two of those refreshing blessings are identified in Zechariah 14. The warrior king first refreshes his kingdom with his living light in verses 6 and 7. In that day there will be no light, the luminaries will dwindle, for it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but it will come about that at evening time there will be light. Verse 6 is difficult Hebrew to translate, and our translations differ on how to translate the opening line of the verse. The best translation, probably, is that there will be no light because the light-bearing bodies, like the sun, will congeal. In other words, there will be no natural light because the sun and stars will solidify or thicken so that they cease to give out light. Scientists, of course, know of the phenomenon called the black hole, which is a star that has solidified so completely that it ceases to give out any light. God is not saying that there will be no light in that day. Instead, the light comes from the Lord himself. There will be light because the next verse tells us that even in the evening there is light. It will be, however, a day different from our natural days today. 
I believe the source of this light in the kingdom will be Jesus Christ himself, who will reign from Jerusalem over the entire world. The prophet Isaiah predicted the same phenomenon in the coming kingdom in Isaiah 60, verses 19 to 20, where we read, No longer will you have the sun for light by day, nor for brightness will the moon give you light. But you will have the Lord for an everlasting light, and your God for your glory. Your sun will no longer set, nor will your moon wane. For you will have the Lord for an everlasting light, and the days of your mourning will be over. So the first blessing is that Christ will refresh his kingdom with his personal living light. The second blessing is that the warrior king will refresh his kingdom with his living water in verse 8. And in that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea. It will be in summer as well as in winter. Living waters are moving waters. I take it that there will literally be physical waters flowing out of Jerusalem to irrigate the parched and barren land of Israel. These waters will go go toward the eastern sea, which is the Dead Sea today, and toward the western sea, which is the Mediterranean Sea. They will flow in all seasons, just as consistently. So the prophecy makes clear that there will be no dry and rainy seasons. God's refreshing waters will flow out of Jerusalem all year long. We must understand the importance of consistently flowing waters for a dry land barren like the Negev, southern Israel. When we walked along the shores of the Dead Sea, and looked out over the parched land from the top of Masada, you can see how desperately the land needs living waters to flow. Much of southern Palestine is arid country, which means it needs irrigation to blossom. There is coming a day when God will provide the irrigation to turn that arid desert into full bloom again. Palestine will once again become a land of plenty. Read Ezekiel 47 verses 1 through 12, and you will find a detailed description of the living waters flowing out from the temple in Jerusalem during the Millennial Kingdom. The prophet Joel also predicts such a wonderful blessing for the nation in Joel 3.18. And in that day, the mountains will drip with sweet wine, and the hills will flow with milk, and all the brooks of Judah will flow with water, and a spring will go out from the house of the Lord to water the valley of Shittim. Having emphasized the physical fulfillment of this prophecy, we must not neglect the spiritual lesson. Living water is a symbol of spiritual refreshing in the Bible. 
The nation of Israel had neglected her source of living water or spiritual refreshing to pursue all of the dead water of this world. Jeremiah the prophet wrote in Jeremiah 2.13, For my people, God says, have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. No one can have abundant life in Christ while pursuing your own broken cisterns of dead water. They hold no water. Yet people today pursue them constantly. My friends, you need the living water of Jesus Christ today, no less than Israel did in their day. Oh, my friends, let go of the broken cisterns of this life and come to the living water which can refresh your soul. There's a great little chorus we used to sing many years ago now. It goes like this. Spring up, O well, within my soul. Spring up, O well, and make me whole. Spring up, O well, and give to me that life abundantly. Abundant life only comes from the refreshing fountain of living water that is found in Jesus Christ. Have you ever started watching a movie on television and then... You couldn't shut it off until it was over. It's late. You know that you ought to go to bed. But you just have to know how the movie ends so you keep watching until the end. Well, talking about the War of Armageddon is like that movie. The world is living the story right now and in the years ahead. And people are fearful and wondering because they don't know how it will all end. The greatest fear in life is the fear of the unknown. But, my friends, we know the end of the story. We've seen the end of the movie. Christ returns as the warrior king. The story ends in victory, not defeat. It ends in celebration, not annihilation. Does that mean that we Christians should sit on our thumbs and rest easy in our comfortable cocoons? No, no, of course not. We ought to be telling the world the end of the story. There is hope in Jesus Christ. The next time someone is sitting beside you, worried about the end of the world, and wondering what will happen in the days ahead, you can say to them, You can rest. I know the end of the story. Because the author of history told me. Would you like me to tell you how you can know the author too and rest in his hope? The end of the story is great. And once you know the end of the story, you no longer need to fear the dangers you face today. That's our message, my friends. It is a message of hope to a world that desperately needs to feel hope. Let's tell them how the movie ends. 